Our scripture today is found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. It's uh, 55. It's a little lengthy passage, but very pertinent to our message today. Matthew 27, 45 through 56. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling out to Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a stick so he could drink. But the rest said, leave him alone. Let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and the tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. After Jesus' resurrection, they left the cemetery, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Zebedee's wife, the mother of James and John. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So when I uh, got assigned this sermon a while back, I was like, I saw the title, and before you even, I can guess really quickly, because you can see in the sequence where it was, but when it said Hour of Darkness, I thought, oh, well, that's just a cheerful one. I get right there, you know, nice title, Hour of Darkness. Kind of sounds like a made-for-TV horror movie or something. And this... The crucifixion of Jesus, there's nothing really lighthearted about it in a sense, so I'm just going to give a disclaimer right up front, no funny stories to get you engaged or anything. We're going to dive right into it. Is that okay? Because we're going to talk about the last week before Jesus' death on a cross and why that's significant for us. Let me back up a second for, real quick. And let's go back. When we started this story series that we're going through, Months ago, we started where? At the beginning, in Genesis, at creation. And we started there, and we see that at the beginning, at the Garden of Eden, things are perfect. Man is in right relationship with God. We, we walk in His presence. We have full communion with Him. But then what? We know the story. Adam and Eve sinned, and that trust was broken with God. That relationship was broken because they willfully disobeyed God and their actions. And then from then, they turned away from God and introduced sin, the disease of sin, into our world. And then from there, we went through the whole story of Israel, didn't we? And we saw how God wanted to use Israel to make His name great among the nations, and how time and time again, they seemed to fail at the obligation and the job that God had given to them. But yet, the whole time, God was still reaching out, trying to call His people back to Him calling him back through the judges, through the kings, through the prophets, asking for his people to return to him and have that relationship. And then the last few weeks we've been talking about Jesus. Jesus comes into the picture, doesn't he? And when Jesus comes into the picture, we finally get to see that same God of the universe who walked hand in hand in the garden now is a human walking in the wilderness side by side with us. And this person is Jesus of Nazareth. And these people who are 
just thought they were the religious elite, thought they had it all together, he comes to teach them what true love is and what grace is. Now, our story begins this week, just a few days before Passover, just a few days before Jesus is going to die on a cross. When we get up to this point, we see the first thing in this story. I'm going to go through several scenarios, and what I would like to do today is this. All the little stories that lead up to the crucifixion, we truly get to see a picture of our human condition through the characters and the stories and the flaws they bring and their sins. I think it kind of puts a picture on us. It shines a light on us and our condition and why we need God. So I'm going to zip through these real quick and get us all the way the week up to crucifixion. Think I can do it in 10 minutes? Hold on. I can do it. I can do it. I can do this. Laura's learned, by the way, that if she dares me to do something, that's the way to motivate me. And so I told her my old wrestling coaches, they would get me mad before a wrestling match and say I couldn't win, you know, and I'd go out there and do it. So this is kind of me daring myself here. I can do this in 10 minutes. All right, here we go. So the first thing we see that week in the story is that the chief priests conspire against Jesus. And when they conspire against Jesus, why are they conspiring against him? Because they are envious of what he has. He has the people in his hands. They follow him and not them. And so this sin of envy grows in them and becomes beyond envy even to hatred. And then from there, the story continues. We see them plotting. But then Jesus and his disciples go to the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, where a woman anoints his feet with oil, with perfume that is fragrant. And Jesus knows what this means. It symbolizes that he's being prepared for his burial that is to come. But the disciples, what do they do? What do the disciples do? Anybody know what the disciples do? We'll make this interactive this morning. What do the disciples do? They rebuke her, don't they? They say, you should have sold that oil and given it to the poor. That would have been the better thing to do. Well, see, Jesus saw right through that. He knew that wasn't the real motive of their heart. The real motive is they were just jealous because they weren't the ones who thought of it first and, and get Jesus' attention. So this, this deceit that was in their hearts was false pity. And Jesus saw right through it. And then Judas comes into the picture. What is Judas in this character? He's the betrayer, right? And Judas comes into the picture, and he's a zealot. And he's looking for Jesus to overthrow Rome because that's what the zealots wanted. And he thought he could ride on the coattails of Jesus right to a position of authority in this new kingdom. Yet we know he had a problem. He was the guy in charge of all the money for the disciples on their journeys. And the New Testament talks about he was skimming off the top. He was taking a little bit from the purse. So we see his greed come into play. And especially when he wants to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then the next part of this story is this where we get two great examples from Jesus. That as they prepare for the Passover, they find a room. And once they get to that room and prepare for the Passover feast, the first thing Jesus does is he surprises them and gives them a great example of humility and servanthood. He grabs a towel and wraps it around him. He grabs a basin of water and surprises them by kneeling down in their presence and washing their feet. Did you know that that was washing the feet was the job of the lowest servant 
in the household. Because imagine that time wearing sandals and all the crud and dirt on your feet and the sweat and all that that entails. And to humble yourself down and wash someone's feet. Yet Jesus does this. And then from there, he declares to them that they are to love one another and that they will know that they are his disciples by the actions they do and how they love each other and love the world. And he declares he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And then he gives what, the, what we call the Last Supper now. They take the Passover meal and he takes the bread and breaks the bread and takes the wine and said, this is, represents my body that's going to be broken and my blood shed. And so he takes this Passover feast this sacri- and makes it a sacrament for the kingdom of God that is to come. But then the story continues from there, and it continues in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the garden there, we see that the pressure is beginning to mount on Jesus and on the disciples. And we see the shadow of pride that comes across Peter when Jesus says, you will forsake me. And he says, no, Lord, I will never forsake you. And then as Jesus goes to pray in the garden to get strength to face the cross, he asks one thing of his disciples. When he was in the garden, he asked his disciples to do one thing. Does anybody know what that was? Stay awake, right? Just stay awake. That's all I'm asking. You just stay awake while I go and pray. And what happens when he comes back from praying? They're asleep. And so here, you know, we're maybe be a little harsh here, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. They're a little slothful, all right? That's the sin they committed there. A little slothful. Waiting. They, the, he asked them to do one thing, and they can't do it. But then from there, Judas returns with a crowd of people, a group of men, who are the servants of the high priest, and they're there to arrest Jesus. And what happens when that happens? Except for Peter, but a lot of them, the disciples in fear fled from the garden, afraid for their own lives, and, and did forsake Jesus like he predicted. And Jesus is handcuffed, and he's taken to Caiaphas' house, and, he, and in that we see Caiaphas' self-righteousness and his false wrath that he puts on Jesus Blaming him for blasphemy, even though he's the one blaspheming God. And then we truly see Jesus, excuse me, we truly see Peter deny Jesus three times. As he is seen in the streets of Jerusalem. And then Jesus is brought before Pilate. And because of his stubborn ignorance, he refuses to really deal with Jesus. And as the shadow over the crowd is growing and growing and growing, and the conflict is growing, he decides to send Jesus to Herod. And then Herod, who's just a glutton for entertainment, just all he wants of Jesus is, show me a miracle, entertain me to prove me you're the son of God. And then from there, he sends him back to Pilate, who in his arrogance gets in Jesus' face and says, if, do you know that I can order you killed at this very instant? And from there, sends him to be flogged 39 times. And then from there, the sin of apathy where Pilate's not going to care anymore. He, he takes a, asks for a bowl of water so he can wash his hand to symbolically say, I am washed of this matter. And then as we get closer and closer to the cross, we see the soldiers. And the soldiers and their cruelty, not only to Jesus, but to the crowd around them. And their manipulation of the crowd as they grab Simon of Cyrene 
because Jesus is faltering with his cross. And what do they ask Simon to do? Carry his cross. Carry his cross to Golgotha and to bear the burden. And in the soldiers' own lust for material possessions and for their own pride, they cast lots for Jesus' clothing as a prize for the crucified king of the Jews. And then we see the crowd around and the thieves and their shadow of cynicism from their blackening hearts in the crowd as they grow more angry and they mock Jesus. And even a thief on the cross shows vanity in demanding that Jesus save them. And said if he's truly the Messiah, he would bail them out. He would save them. Then the Bible says from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness fell over the land. And Jesus drew into himself all the sin and death of the world, absorbing it, paying for it, destroying its power to separate man from God. And he cries out, it is finished. Into my hands, into thy hands I commit my spirit, Father. The Bible says at that moment, the ground shook, rocks split, the huge temple veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the temple was torn in two. And there was darkness in the land. Can we go back to that one slide real quick? Go back. The sins of those, all of those characters that we just read about. But if we're honest with ourselves, each and every one of us can pick one or more sins off that list that we've committed, that we're guilty of. So just as Jesus died for their sins, he took on all our sins and paid the price that we could not pay. He took on the sins of the entire world. He took on death onto himself and paid that price for us. And it's no little thing about the temple veil. Often we skip over that part of the story. The temple veil is what separated the Holy of Holies, which was a 15 by 15 cube space that was the dwelling place of God. That was once a year. The only, it was such a sacred place that only once a year the chief priest could go in and give a blood sacrifice for the atonement of sins. Just once a year. And such special preparations had to be made. And yet when Jesus died, that veil was ripped apart. So the separation between God's presence, his dwelling presence, and us was broken apart and taken away. Christ had paid the price. He was the true atonement. He was the best chief high priest. He was the best sacrifice for us and paid for us our sins. So the question is for us today is this, as we prepare for communion here. We're still living in a fallen world. We haven't made it to heaven yet. We still live in a world of sin that we often struggle with. So what is it for us, knowing this truth, but we're living in a fallen world, what truth can we hold on to? And I often think of Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, where it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses, 
to the life of faith. Let us strip away every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he's seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. So how do we do this? How do we live in this world of fallen sin? We keep our eyes on Jesus. Until that one day when we stand in glory in front of him. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, I've told, uh, I've mentioned before in a sermon um, that when I was 14, my mom passed away from cancer. And during that time, um, the last few weeks she was in the hospital, um, she did something that I remember to this day and I held on to and cherished. She had to have uh, her leg support. And so she had a couple bars at the end of her bed that raised up and kind of had these straps that held down. And on that bar, she asked one of the nurses to put a picture of Jesus it was just a cheesy little picture, probably from the chapel or something, and it was held up there. I remember with white medical duct tape, I mean, white uh, medical tape on the end of her bed. And she said it was there to keep her focus on Jesus, to get her, get her through the troubled times. And no matter if it's a trial that's been brought upon you, or if it's a trial you brought on yourself because of sin. The one the way to get you through and by it is keep your focus on Jesus. Because if we keep our focus on Jesus, our focus is not on our sin. We keep our focus on Jesus and not our sin. John 8 says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you have the light that leads to life. So as we come before communion today, this, in a sense, is a way we keep our eyes on Jesus because this represents the work of the cross he did on our behalf. So as we step forward today in communion, may we always keep our eyes on Jesus and not on the sin that so easily entangles us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, first of all, for your plan that you gave to us to redeem all of creation and to call us into right relationship with you. We give you thanks, dear God, and we, we don't even have the words for the proper way to say thank you to you, but we say thanks. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross for us, paying the debt that we could not pay. We thank you, God, that you have torn the temple veil in two, and you've allowed us to have full communion with you through the power of your Holy Spirit. My prayer today, dear God, is that if there's anyone in this room that has not made that full commitment to you, that has said, I will keep my eyes fully on Jesus, that they would do that today and surrender their lives, their hearts to you. I thank you in advance for the work that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.